0: let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for making this day a reality so that we can fellowship together in the unity of the faith by the bond that ties us all together, that is love. Thank you, Father, for the peace that guards our hearts, making this walk of ours tolerable, despite the antagonistic tendencies of the world, Father, we pray that our hearts be ever open and humble to your truth and that whenever we hear it, may our faith be increased. For your word states, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Father, we pray also for the Spirit's convicting ministry in our lives, that we receive it gladly and humbly in love, for that is how you intend it to be. We pray for all those members of this congregation that are unable to be with us this morning due to sickness, that they be encouraged for as long as it is still called today, as your word states, knowing that our thoughts and prayers are with them always. And finally, Father, we pray for the lost, for there are many, for the gate is wide that leads to destruction. We pray that the gospel be received before it's too late. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, we are on part 77 of a fantastic series uh, that started back in September of last year. Uh, part 77 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, arguably the most important series I've ever taught on, uh, certainly the most comprehensive on the thing that matters most, the central theme of the central doctrine in Scripture itself, which is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Go to Colossians 1.9. We'll give this tremendously powerful passage one last read, Colossians 1 verse 9. You should be familiar with it by now. It's the third time we've gone to it in our lessons this past week. But there's a lot impregnated in there that we need to sort of ferret out. Colossians one nine. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this is obviously based on our previous studies, even years past. Walking is an issue with believers, predominantly, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, Uh, to believers, at least these are the folks that he's trying to speak directly to, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us, there's the second sort of focal point, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I gave you that Greek word, hikono'o, up here on the board, that translates qualified in New American. It means to make, be made or make sufficient, made adequate, render fit, be made able or competent. In other words, if he's going to ask you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, or the gospel, as he says elsewhere, then he needs to, by grace, qualify us in the first place. And that's what Paul is writing about. And that's what we read. It means to make sufficient, make adequate, render fit, to be made able or competent even considering the simple fact that Colossians 19 oh excuse me uh, through 12 is one long sentence that that passage we just read 9 to twelve is one long sentence it means that we ought to understand that Paul was conveying one complete thought if you look at that Colossians 1 9 to 12 is one sentence that means that we ought to consider it one complete thought and the front end of the sentence he says walk in a manner worthy and then at the end of the sentence he says that god has qualified us to do that thing so you have sort of the command if you would or the intention followed by the grace reality that god has given us that we are qualified to do that thing so that's what that sentence uh, really describes uh, to us if we do this if we think about this as one complete thought which is what we should we quickly see that what Paul has done is tie walking in a manner worthy of the Lord to being qualified. Those are two concepts that are now knit together with one complete thought. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, being qualified. Those two things ought to be brought together in your souls, which, as the Holy Scriptures reveal, is a central theme relating to the Gospel itself. Walking is central or a result of the gospel reality itself. Whenever we read such a line in Scripture, it ought to conjure up other key biblical concepts regarding the spiritual life. Here are just a few in terms of this concept of walking worthy. Walking worthy. Not just walking, but walking worthy. Okay, Which is what we see in Colossians 1.10. We see it elsewhere. We see the same concept uh, written by Paul elsewhere. Different context maybe, but the same idea applied in context. We know from Romans 1.17, he writes, From faith to faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, that certainly is walking worthy, to live by faith, understanding from faith to faith. From salvation to sanctification, however you'd like to conceptualize that in your own soul, the idea is that the righteous man shall live by faith. Live, walk. That's a worthy thing. Second, we have in Galatians 5:16 and 25, walk by the Spirit. Well, that's also a worthy way to walk. To walk by the Spirit. So these are also sort of knit together just elsewhere in Scripture. In Philippians 1.27, we have conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Walk, conduct, be. Conduct yourselves worthy in a manner worthy of the Gospel. We see that in Philippians 1.27. Same concept. And then finally in Ephesians 4.1, we see walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So we see this consistent theme from Paul. But behind it, as we're going to see in Scripture, we're going to investigate a little bit more because I don't want you to just take my word for it uh, in a bulleted format. We're going to investigate it more that walking is always preceded, the command to walk is always preceded by the gift of grace. So God's always going to grace us with what we need and able to make us competent. Hikano'o, right? To make us able To make us competent to be able to walk. And that takes a lot of load off, doesn't it? Because if you're legalistic, you think that you're the one who has to get yourself up out of bed in the morning and magically walk. That you and human power have to do this thing because God knows what we're thinking. Somehow God hasn't uh, provided grace under one of His commands, and that would be against Scripture itself. There's certainly no shortage of Scripture on this topic that Paul speaks of in Colossians 1, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. To borrow from some of our more recent lessons in this series, we've simply been reminded to be. So we've seen simple reminders like being. What does it mean to walk? Is that something I do? Do I step out in the morning and say, Well, I have to do this thing? And I take on this legalistic or this religious type persona, even? That I'm going to walk in a manner worthy? Of, what does that look like? Some of us walk and hobble. So, what does walking in a manner worthy of the Lord even look like? So, we know that it's not a physical thing, we know it's not a thing that we do necessarily. It's something that we do as a result of something supernatural, like being. So, being like what, though? How about, as we've learned recently, grateful for starters. Grateful that you're here this morning. Grateful that you're able to even walk the spiritual walk. Grateful for all the grace that He's given you. Grateful for, you fill in the blanks. You live your life, you know all the things that you're grateful for, even when you so-called forget them. You know what you're grateful for. How about we start with that? That's certainly worthy. So grateful, for starters. And What's the greatest reason to be grateful to God? The gospel. The fact that you've been saved. Hopeless, helpless situation. God saved you. Read Romans 5.8. For while we were yet sinners, God sent His Son to save us. That alone should be enough to provide us with gratitude for the rest of our lives. But we're brats, and it doesn't. So we've studied that in a variety of ways already. All that is behind us in our 77 parts. But as you've likely already noticed in your own studies, there's No end to the infinite number of ways in which we ought to be grateful for what He's done for us. It's not just the Gospel. The Gospel certainly is sufficient. But there's so much more that He does for us after He saves us. So I'll just give you a couple of verses to remind you about gratitude up here on the board. Job 9.10 Who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. So it's not like we're ever going to run out of reasons to be grateful. If we're humble, we realize that God's doing things that we can't number every day in our lives. There's lots of things that He does we don't even realize He's doing until years later, if at all. And they really were for our benefit. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Really, the Spirit is just saying there's no end to the things that we ought to be grateful for. So if nothing else, we ought to live a life of gratitude. That certainly is living in a manner worthy This is why the phrase living the gospel reality has been so prominent from this pulpit. It's because living a life of gratitude in light of the gospel is how we do anything worthy of the gospel. Let me say that again. Living a life of gratitude in light of the gospel is how we do anything worthy of the gospel of the Lord. Go to Philippians one twenty-seven. So a lot of people, I believe, make the mistake of saying great. The Bible says walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and they look for little commands and religious activities to do that thing. And scripture says, listen, that's never going to happen until you have gratitude. Until you're grateful from the very depths of your soul for what happened at your own salvation even that's the beauty of the gospel philippians 127 and again i promised you we'd go through some of this scripture here so you didn't just take my word for it only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Remember the, uh, in the uh, what is it, Acts 5, the ends of, end of Acts 5, where the disciples, after they had been whipped even, said, this is great to be honored, to be worthy of suffering for Christ. So we know that you've been predestined, we've covered this a couple of months ago, you've been predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. And as hard as that is in the moment, we ought to say thank you. Because it's in those times, uh, and it's become self-evident if you've gone through it, that we grow often the most. And it's the only way that we'll ever grow, through suffering. So he says in verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake experiencing the same conflict conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul wrote from experience, obviously. Again, the point on the board, we're going through, we're still anchored to Colossians 1.10, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then we're sort of going through these scriptures. That was the third bullet there. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel arguably though the most relevant of all the scriptures to our current studies on the board is that in Ephesians 4 go to Ephesians 4:1 where we see another instance of walking described by Paul in scripture and what the spirit's saying to you this morning is don't just read the likes of Colossians 1:10 in a vacuum, understand that it was the same guy and the same filling of the Spirit that wrote these things to different churches. But you see, it's the same concept, isn't it? It's not like it was a totally different concept. The context was different, so the response to outside stimuli obviously warranted a different response, but the actual core doctrine that he was defending was the same. He's like, don't lose the faith. Don't lose sight of the purity, the simplicity of purity, of devotion to Christ, the gospel. Don't let these outside stimuli ruin your walk. It's just different context, folks, and that's what I've been encouraging you to do. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, and what you're going to see is there's only really a few central themes, there's really one central theme, the gospel itself, but then there's only a few core doctrines that are constantly either being amplified or defended. And it's just a contextual issue. Let's read it. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This sounds an awful lot, folks, like our lessons. Verse 4, There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but to each one of us grace is, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, that about wraps up our lessons as of late. Now, just to put this into perspective, though, because the Spirit loves to exhaust the flesh's creativity. Do you see anything mentioned about intellectualism? if you were to read what we just read again, Ephesians 4, 1-7, do you see anything about intellectualism? Do you... Well, how about having to understand complex doctrines? Do you see anything there that's just mind-blowing, complex, that is reserved for the intellectual crowd? I don't. A profound no, as far as I'm concerned. Despite what our fleshes would desire for the sake of religious purposes, for the sake of stratification. Again, the reason we've read the Colossians 1 passage three times now in our last three lessons is because it's that central to what we've called out as experiential sanctification. We know that God saves us daily, but He also sanctifies us in time. So that's why we've been reading this thing and this idea of walking has been amplified from the pulpit because walking correlates to experiential or progressive sanctification. We're walking towards His will in our lives. He's transforming us. Again, the reason we did that is because it relates to experiential sanctification The point is that we all need to share God's perspective on this, not just man's. From a lesson earlier this month, we were given this. And this has everything to do with perspective. God wants us to share in His perspective on all of this. He says, as far as I'm concerned, it's all done. So I need you to be assured. I need you to have my perspective so that you can gain that sense of assurance in your own salvation, your own sanctification. So this is a perspective we got, oh, um, I guess a month or two ago. Sanctification is being who God has made you to be. To be full of faith, full of hope, and full of love is the greatest thing we could hope for in our lives, or hope our lives become. And if we are full of those things, He will use us for mighty good works along the way as part of our sanctification. For example, evangelism. At the time, we were talking about evangelism. Traveling back a little further in our archives into the March time frame, we had this as well, to help us on perspective regarding sanctification. Sanctification is a state of being, not a series of checkboxes. Being implies doing. However, the opposite is not true. Being in love, grateful, hopeful, confident, etc these are the essence of sanctification. For example, Galatians 5:22 and23, the fruit of the spirit: love, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, those things. Being love, being in love, grateful, hopeful, confident. Etc. These are the essence of sanctification. So what the Spirit told us was that don't be out there trying to strive. Don't say, oh, I see the word walk. I got to walk." No, that's what a religious person does, to try to fulfill the commands of God in the human flesh. So sanctification is not a series of check boxes. Okay, did that. Okay, what's my next thing? Okay, did that. Okay, did that. But what about the transcendent features? Of the spiritual life the fruit of the Spirit for example we don't do love do we do we do peace do we do kindness I mean you can show these things but you don't do you are these things and that's how you know you're being sanctified which is very different drilling down a little further we also were given this point sanctification simplified if the Holy Spirit is the host of the spiritual life, and he is, being transcendent. We saw that Greek word, "hooper huperbalo. Then his fruit in believers must also be transcendent. We don't do spiritual things. We are them. Our deeds are merely the evidence. Now James gets into it in James 2. If I don't see any deeds, then you have a problem. John talks about this. We covered all that in the beginning of this series. But that's not what we're talking about here. We don't do spiritual things. We are them. Our deeds are merely the evidence. And then making this more practical, the final point that I stole from March up here in the board, if we are to understand true sanctification, we must understand that it cannot be achieved in the absence of a grateful heart. It cannot be achieved in the absence of a grateful heart. The cross is the mainstay of a believer's gratitude. That's what I call, and I don't care what you call it, I call it living the gospel reality, never straying too far from what happened on the cross for me personally and being grateful and saying it's horrible to look at anyone else in this world and realize that it's possible they don't have Christ. They don't have the reason that I have to be grateful. That's a horrible thing to think about. But we know what Scripture says. I hope you are able to see how the Spirit's weaving all of these lessons together, all of which are meant to amplify one central doctrine the gospel. That's what this is all about. It's all to amplify the gospel. The clearer the gospel becomes in our souls, the more likely we are to be who and what God desires for us to be in Christ in time. It's crazy, isn't it? That we would ever lose sight of the gospel. But everyone I've talked to on this subject in this congregation says, yep, I Mr. Smarty Pants, lost sight of the gospel. Amazing. But that's humility, and so they've been delivered and set free since, and continue to be so. But the point of all of this, part 77 after all, the clearer the gospel becomes in our souls, the more likely we are to be who and what God desires for us to be in Christ in time. So again, walking isn't about doing, it's about being. You will do, but it's not the main point. It's about being. That's the greater perspective here. If James were here, he might call it out as a greater grace in James 4.6. In any case, now that we have a good handle on walking let's get back to the fact that God has qualified us, each of us, to do so. Go back to Colossians 1.12. So all of that was just to amplify walking a little bit more, to give each of you a little more perspective from Scripture, again, so you don't just take my word for it, but... We're getting back to this idea of Him qualifying us now to be able to walk. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, there's your gratitude again, coming up as always, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And again, qualified means to make sufficient, made adequate, render fit, be made able or competent We are qualified to do all of the things involved in experiential sanctification, but I want to qualify this, no pun intended. To use a military analogy, just because you're, quote, qualified to be trained doesn't mean you're already a seasoned veteran. Just because you're qualified to be trained doesn't mean you're already a seasoned veteran. For example, if you meet the physical and intellectual requirements for flight school in the United States Air Force, then you are, quote, qualified to enter flight school, to enter. But you can't fly yet, at least not a fighter jet. However, if you don't have, say, 20-20 vision, you are disqualified before you can even get into the program. Likewise, you have been qualified through your salvation to be sanctified experientially. In other words, God says, go walk in a manner, boom, boom, we saw several scriptures, several passages. But remember that I've qualified you to enter into this program I call sanctification experientially. So you have been qualified through your salvation to be sanctified experientially. And that was a gift from God, just like sanctification is, which leaves, by the way, the flesh out in the cold, rendered useless. This is why when we read Paul's words in the likes of Colossians 1, we must, as I've taught you in the past, finish the sentence. Finish the sentence. Don't just... Look at a list like this and say, oh great, I've got a lot to do, don't I? Let me get my knuckles cracked here and let's get all religious. Finish the sentence. Finishing the sentence is this, that God has qualified you to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So you've already sort of passed screening test. You're qualified. Christ is in you. You're able, you're competent. But as we know, that thing doesn't happen overnight. Hence the sanctification process. That's why we don't, as young believers, and I've taught this in the past, run out and try to do everything and do every command. Oh, well, the Bible says I should love my love my neighbors. The Bible says I should there's greater love, no greater love than this to lay down my life for my neighbors. And they're literally laying down in the person's front lawn. Why? Because they have no idea what that means. They're saved, they're exuberant, but they have no idea what it actually means to lay down their life for others. But people get all religious and up in arms and they don't realize that God's the one that qualified them and God is the same one that calls them by grace to do this thing. But everything is done in God's timing. So on top of that, Some of you need to realize that your very sense of identity lies in the simple thought on the board. Who and what you are. Who do I, or what am I? Who am I in this world? What's my sense of identity? Well, this is a good place to start. God has qualified you to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We know we've through studies over the past month that we have a great commission on our lives. That is to spread the word, spread the gospel specifically to a world that's basically shriveling up into depravity. And we have this great commission on us. And God says, I will train you up. That's Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Doing what you're doing right now. This spiritual gift is given to train you up for service, to serve others, like Jesus said we should. But you don't know how to serve until you learn, until you read the Bible, until you are taught appropriately. And as those things begin to transpire, as you're sanctified, your sense of identity begins to be more and more cemented in Christ Jesus. You begin to identify personally, in every way, with Christ himself, That's why I know that little band. I brought this up many times. The one that says WWJD? It's corny. You know what would Jesus do? There's some. There's some truth to that. What would Jesus do? Seriously, what would Jesus do in this situation? Would he judge that person for being a bozo? Probably not. But you just did, and you're oh so efficient at it, telling everyone else pointing out everyone else's little flaws when there's a big old log sticking out of your eye. Oh, you got a little speck right there. A little speck. That's not love. That's not sanctification. That's not being the fruit of the Spirit. That's not having that. So some of you need to step back and realize that your very sense of identity lies in this simple thought that you are not sort of, but literally a member of God's family in heaven? You're not kind of like sort of. You literally are. If you're saved, you are right now. You've already been adopted. You've inherited certain things. You don't even know what you've inherited yet. Certain abilities that are forthcoming. Things that you might realize the longer you stay on earth, the more he sanctifies you. But the simple fact is that you have been qualified to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's allow a little scripture to encourage us on this point. Go to Romans 8.14. Romans 8.14. Again, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I'm not just up here trying to get you jazzed up. Oh, don't you feel so good this morning? I don't know why I just became a Mexican, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) Romans 8.14. Let's let Scripture do its thing. That's what it's there for. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Translated loosely, that means Daddy. Daddy. We've had this this in our lessons in the past, right? You should be conversational with your dad in heaven. It came up when we were talking about confession, right? We should be very conversational with dad. I call him dad. I call him father. I call him dad. Depending on my mood, I guess. I don't know. I don't think he really cares. As long as I keep conversing with him. As long as I'm honest with him. As long as I'm forthright with him as long as i'm just confessing what i know to be true in my own life if i've been a knucklehead i'll say dad i've been a knucklehead if i've done something that i think was pleasing to him i'd say dad i did something that was pleasing to you thanks for the opportunity i see it was changing people's lives you need to be conversant with dad and the more you understand that you have truly been adopted as part of the gospel reality, the more that you will live in that reality and have a relationship that matters with your Father in heaven. Verse 16. How will you know? The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit. Imagine that. You mean He gave us the apparatus too to actually hear God, the Spirit Himself, speak to us? Yep, it's called your spirit. So, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. So, up here on the board, in terms of your sense of identity, a believer must seek their sense of identity in Christ nowhere else. Not through education, achievement, reputation, worldly successes, etc. You find your sense of identity in Christ Jesus. The world will gladly provide you with a sense of identity, but it is fleeting, making it the manufacturer of insecurity. You want to be insecure? Go ahead. Place your sense of identity, your self-worth, your self-esteem on what the world thinks of you. You want to be insecure? That is literally probably the fastest, most effective way to undermine any sense of security that you might have as a human being. Because all the world specializes in is pulling the rug out from underneath you. And by the way, your flesh can never hold up to the standards that the world puts forth. For the flesh to try to achieve. It's a joke. It's a big game. It's a bunch of gerbils on a wheel or hamsters. What worms on a wheel? Both. Both of them do, right? <laughs> but nobody had animals growing up? Sheesh. As the Spirit taught us this past week, finding out who you are in Christ, stay humble, James 4 6, and keep hearing, Romans 10 17. Stay humble, keep hearing. We're destined to be deceived otherwise. As soon as you depart, in other words, as soon as you become arrogant, or you stop hearing the Word of God, as soon as you stop reading your Bible, as soon as you stop coming to class, as soon as you stop reading the blogs or the books, or whatever other grace you've been graced out with, that's when you start veering off. And as soon as you start veering off, you will be deceived. Say, no, I'm like an iron vault. No, you're not you're an arrogant bum. It's true. So we're destined to be deceived. Otherwise, the flesh is a brittle instrument of unrighteousness, never able to provide convictions that last, never able to afford true security. Only eternal life's perspective can do that. So, if you've ever struggled with your sense of identity... Why not just allow God to provide you with it through Scripture, by faith? For example, for starters, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, part A, but by the grace of God I am what I am. That's a great place to start, talking about your sense of identity. Not who and what I am, not how strong I am. Oh my, God, oh, I almost ripped my sleeve. It's incredible. It's incredible. Phil. <laughs> Not how strong I am, or how how beautiful I look today, or whatever. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You don't walk by being physically strong, or beautiful, or intelligent, or any of that garbage. You walk supernaturally. And it begins with a little old thing called humility. And it precipitates other things like gratitude, and joy, and such. 1 Corinthians 12.11, just as He wills. This is God's deal, so to speak. By now, you have all received the latest blog, I'm assuming, titled, It's Okay, I Was Born This Way. The reason, and that might be one of the most um, important blogs I've written in a long time, It's Okay, I Was Born This Way, The reason for that blog is to reveal one of the greatest successes that Satan has ever perpetrated. And it's continuing to take shape right before our very eyes. The reason for that blog was not to highlight any particular sin, or particular sinners, for that matter. The reason for that blog was to uncover what goes on behind the scenes regarding man's treatment of sin in today's world. It wasn't about specific sin. It wasn't about specific sinners. It was about what goes on behind the scenes. How is the world treating sin? How do you treat sin? Are you now tolerant? Are you making excuses? For your own or for others? The sin is irrelevant to the primary point in the blog. Here's the point of the blog that is consistent with our studies as of late up here in the board. Undermining the gospel. If Satan can get people to deflect personal responsibility for sin, claiming they were, you know, born this way. I was born a homosexual. So? You were born a sinner. So? I was born a drunk. So? No, seriously. I hope a little baby doesn't say that, but three-year-old. I was born drunk, so, you know, let's go get our drink on. No, you know what I'm saying, right? Everybody is born a sinner. So? That's your excuse? I was born this way, so therefore God created me this way, therefore I'm not responsible. Really? Really? That's how it goes. If Satan can get people to deflect personal responsibility for sin, claiming they were, quote, born this way, he has undermined the baseline need that draws people to the gospel. Very smart, Satan. Namely, the need for a Savior being a sinner. This is a very subtle point but critical if you're ever going to fully understand how Satan works. Let me illustrate this for you. Your enemies, at least the successful ones, aren't going to send a battery of frontal assaults at you to trip you up. It's not that easy. Satan, we're in the Bible to say Satan would have a, quote, fight fair. So your enemies are not going, at least the successful ones, they're not going to come at you straight on. At least not exclusively. Not if they're going to be successful, because you'll be prepared for them. That may occur as a distraction, but the, quote, kill shot comes from the side or from behind while you're distracted with the silliness in front. A good illustration, and I, please excuse me if you haven't seen this movie, but It's a wonderful illustration. A good illustration of this is with the velociraptors in the movie Jurassic Park. If you recall the scene where the highly skilled hunter guy sees a velociraptor in front of him, grabbing his attention. And as he realizes that while his attention was focused on the one in front of him, multiple ones were approaching him from behind. His last words were, clever girl. And then they ate him. He knew it. He knew he had been outsmarted. The great hunter had been outsmarted. Got distracted in front. They circled around. And they ate him. That's a great example of how Satan works. You know, the Bible says he's a roaring lion seeking souls to devour, right? What do you think he's doing? he's going to be like,
1: oh, hey, here I am.
0: I'm way over here. I'm coming. Like the red coats in the old, that was weird, right? Okay, everybody stand facing each other. Let's shoot each other until one's left.
1: Oh, hey, here
0: I am. I'm coming right now. I'm coming at you. Here I come. No. He might do something in front of you to distract you. But he's around back. He's lining you up between his crosshairs. The kill shot is not coming from the front because you've got your shields up. The kill shot's coming from where you can't see. He just needs to distract you long enough to get in position. Clever girl. So that's a great example of how Satan works. The kill shot isn't coming from in front of you. It's coming from the covert operations assembling behind you. And if you've read the book, Covert Arrogance, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of times it comes from within. It's your own covert arrogance that's undermining your own spiritual life. Be careful you aren't being distracted by things in front of you while the serious eroding damage is occurring behind you. You may be You know, dying a slow death, so to speak, by ignoring my words right now. By saying, oh no, I can see everything Satan's doing in my life. Oh, wow, you have a problem. (laughs) Seriously, how great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? You think you know everything that Satan's got going on in, in, in your life? Every way that he's conjuring up with him and his little demons to trip you up? And as I've heard many, many times as of late, It's like every time I take a step forward, the next thing I know, I'm undermined by something, and I'm two steps back. Those things, that thing I said I would never do again, I'm doing it again. Lo and behold, I'm doing it again. And it was very erosive. It was seductive, just like a sleazy little seducer does. (laughs) Oh, you, you smell lovely today. You know, you're just like a boat, you know, in a current. You're like, (laughs) and you're just being seduced away. And the next thing you know, you're like, how did I end up downstream again? I had camp set up way up there. Now I'm way down here near the waterfall again. Because you got seduced away. Satan's very smart very smart. Be careful how you think he's trying to get to you. Chances are he's just distracting you and there's a much bigger thing going on somewhere else. That's why I love that verse in Hebrews 3:13 in the amplified, the back end of it, by the deceitfulness of sin, its cleverness, delusive glamour and sophistication. God, that's awesome. Cuz most people think sin, oh, it's like an ugly beast You know, like a wildebeest, and it chases after me and pokes me and chews on me. No, it's clever, it's delusive glamour, and it's sophistication. Think about that. These things are real, these things are just as real, more real than any other kind of distraction. People are funny. Up here on the board. Your enemies, Satan, the world, and the old sin nature are very clever. As described in the book, Covert Arrogance, covert ops thrive under cover. That's what they do. They live and breathe where you're not looking, in darkness. The whole world is deceived by this very thing, my friends, by the deceitfulness of sin. It's cleverness, delusive glamour, and sophistication. What an incredible way to describe sin. Clever, glamorous, sophisticated. That's news to a lot of people, but hopefully it's eye-opening. I shared a piece of a recent post I put out on a social network just to ensure we don't blur the lines between sin and sinners. It's funny because... Anytime I do something public, sometimes he, well, sometimes when I do something public, the Spirit has me precondition my audience. This came out a day or two before the blog. God has taught me one very important lesson hate sin, but love sinners. I figure if I can do just this one thing, I'm doing okay. You know how I know? Because that's how Jesus lived. That's all I know. Hate sin, but love sinners. Reflect for a moment. <clears throat> Does anyone else here find it difficult to love those who are trying to destroy the gospel? I'm the only one. I've got a couple of nods. People are like, eh, sometimes, you know. <laughs> Depends if the game's on. Because if the game's on, Then I got my little distraction in front of me, and what's beside and behind me, I don't care. I'll speak for all of us, whether you're too arrogant to admit it or not. And if you are, read the book, just saying. It's difficult to love those who are trying to destroy the gospel. So let's get a little encouragement from the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't take it from the bald guy. My experiences are my experiences. I can share them. Sometimes I can share wisdom through them. That might help me drive the bus. It might help you realize certain things. But at the end of the day, it's the author and perfecter of our faith that we should be focusing our attention on. The one who not only teaches us how to love, then commands that we do love, but also showed us what love is. Go to Luke 6.27. Luke 6.27. So how about we go to some Scripture to be encouraged? And every time I read, you know, hate sin, love sinners, I always think of, you know, the accusatory religious folks. Hey, why does your Jesus, you know, break bread with sinners? Why is he spending time with sinners? How funny is that to say, huh? It's like he just talked to you, you moron. He's trying to save you, you sinner moron. He loves you, even though you're all of the above. It's very funny how we point fingers at others. Luke 6.27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies this is red letters right for most of you right? if you've got a red letter bible but i say to you who hear love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you whoever hits you on the cheek offer him the other side or, excuse me offer him the other also and whoever takes away your coat do not withhold your shirt from him either Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Well, can't really argue with Jesus then, can we? It is difficult to love your enemies, but with the right perspective it can be done. As we've learned in a multitude of ways in this series even, what's the greatest thing we can give another person? Is it our money? Or other things? I mean, is that how we express our love towards someone else? That's the greatest expression of love is to give them something? Or is it ourselves? Is it ourselves? We've answered that question not too long ago. What does it mean to lay down our lives for others? And we learn something very basic, an unavoidable truth about Christ's heart. And it's something we can ponder right now also through his example. So I need you to reflect on something. Ask yourselves up here in the board. What does the Bible reveal Jesus doing more of? Giving finances or things it can purchase or giving himself, his person, his time, his energy, his love. You tell me. What's the Bible reveal? The answer to that question is found in Scripture, duh, which is where we ended on Thursday. Go to John thirteen thirty four. John thirteen thirty four. That's the beauty about the Bible. All the answers are there, folks. It's the funniest thing that people would rather go off and invent their own doctrines to live by and then wonder why their sense of self, their self-esteem is really just destroyed by the end of the day. Always fearful, always anxious, John thirteen thirty four. Always afraid of what the world can do to them. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's scripture, right? Yeah. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Oh, here we go again. All this love. Well, I love by giving my money. Here you go. Go get a video game. Get out of my hair. The game's on. What do you think? And we're children of God. So we understand what it means to be children, even in our later stages in life. What do you think is more valuable to a child? Money or time? Thank you. Money or time? I got one vote for time. We know what it is. We've learned this. So this is why he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he says, By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. As we noted a while back now in our lessons, up here in the board, another question to ask ourselves is what do true believers do? Like, what's the result of all this transcendent activity, these things that happen in our soul? Things like gratitude and being changed, being a new creature and identifying with that thing. What do true believers do? They follow Jesus. Luke 19, 1-10, John 10, 27. Go to John 10, 25. John 10, 25. All of our activity this morning has to do with the gospel. A lot of it's review. Hopefully it's pulling together like like a shoestring for you. John 10.25 Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. What did he say early? He says, the ones who love, that's how they'll know that you're my sheep. The ones who can't love, the ones who love through giving of themselves in other ways, not through love, well, what does that say? You, be, you decide what Scripture has to say on that topic. But Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and guess what they do? They follow me. They follow me. Again, let's not artificially use our so-called experiences either within the faith to dispute Jesus' own words here. They are what they are. And there's no context here to imply anything other than what he's saying. Again, the question before us is what the true believers do? They follow Jesus. So before I close, I just want to say that It truly is that simple. It truly is that simple. If you're one of of his sheep, I didn't say this. Christ himself said this. If you're one of his sheep, you will follow him. And I'll end with a little pet peeve of mine that has been driving me bananas. Because I feel like I need to defend the gospel here. Some folks still struggle with the simple words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in John 10. Still playing games with the truth. Citing personal experiences as some kind of an actual proof that not every believer follows Jesus. That is garbage from the pit of hell. If you are a believer, you will follow Jesus. That's scripture. Not Pastor Ed, that is scripture. And unless you want to take on Jesus Christ himself, you have a problem. Now I'm not assuming anyone in here has that problem, but it's hovering around our church and it's driving me crazy and I've heard echoes of it even in people's conversation or hearing about conversations that have occurred between people even in the congregation. Like, Where the heck is that coming from? It's because people have this awful tendency to use personal experiences as some kind of proof when Scripture says it right in Scripture. First and foremost, first and foremost, you might be calling Jesus himself a liar who said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Second, here's the errant piece of logic that some are using to justify clinging to false doctrines and i'll use a scenario to drive the point home so please listen up suppose after class i come up to you for real pretend it's me too do i make you uncomfortable most of you suppose i come up after come up to you after class and say to your face hey I've never seen any fruit out of you. So therefore, you cannot be a believer. And I'm dead serious. I'm hoping you all would say, you're not God. I'm hoping. So you can't judge me regarding my salvation status. And you'd be 100% righteous in responding that way. But... Here's the subtle tolerance that seems to go undetected. The same arrogance that might suggest knowing someone's not saved is the same one that says, Oh, that person right there is saved. They just never have any fruit. Well, my response to that is identical to the first scenario. You're not God so you cannot pronounce salvation you are not the judge of it you see there's a comedy of errors here two principal ones to be exact the first one is that some people think they are believers or there are believers who never bear any fruit that's a lie essentially discounting the very words of jesus when he said plainly in john 10:27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me. The second error is related to the first, which is to say that they have the ability to walk around and reassure people of their faith as if to play God based on the criteria of the first errant doctrine that some can be saved and not bear fruit, which is really to follow Jesus. I wrote a blog recently titled Is it okay to question my faith for the very purpose of refuting such errors in thinking? While this type of errant thinking potentially accommodates those seeking some sort of peace with unbelievers, it is a lie from the pit of hell. People need to stop playing God in either, either direction. Whether it's for or against someone's salvation, it's never their job. But since it's, this is the kicker, but since it's less, let's say, offensive, it's less offensive to tell someone they're saved. Such garbage flies under the radar, under the auspices of kindness. It's not kind. To play God and tell someone, oh, you're definitely saved. That's not kind. That's called arrogance. You don't get to play God in either direction. But you see, everybody's okay with saying, oh, you're totally saved. Because it's nice. And it says, oh, good. Go so it flies under the radar. But let me tell you, my friends, and I say this with As much force as anything I've ever said from this pulpit. It's no less evil than the person who runs around telling people they aren't saved. If anything, I'd argue that the false affirmation, you know, you're saved, is more dangerous, more insidious. In any case, if Jesus says his sheep will follow him, then guess what? They will if He also says that unbelievers cannot follow Him because they cannot even hear His voice, so says Scripture, then guess what? They can't. They can't. There will be those who say they can hear hear Him, but they cannot. Scripture reveals this time and again. There are a lot of people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and He's going to say, Get away from me, I never knew you. But didn't I do this, that, and the other thing? You sure did. But your heart was wrong. You never really accepted me as Lord and Savior. You just wanted me as some screwed up alternative to your little personal plans in the world. I guess if all else fails, I'll just say I believe and I'll go to heaven, right? And there are people around these people saying, you're totally in, you're totally in, I'll see you in the end. What's on the game, by the way? The worst thing any of you can do is give someone a false sense of hope based on a comedy of errors, based on your own arrogance and desire to play God. Up here on the board. Playing God. Just like a person has no right to say, quote, you're not saved because I cannot see any fruit. A person has no right to say, You're saved even though you bear no fruit. You don't follow Jesus. They are both heinous errors that stand in direct contradiction to holy scripture. And which one do you think is more insidious? Which one's more acceptable? By societal standards, by politically correctness, Oh, everybody's okay with someone running around like a moron playing God saying, Oh, you're totally saved. Don't, worry about it. Don't sweat it. Take it on me. Everybody's up in arms. If I said to you right now, you're not saved. I've never seen a lick of fruit out of you in my entire life. There's no way you're saved. You'd be like, dude, get away from me. How can you possibly say that? And you'd be totally right. It's literally the same arrogance that says, oh, you're totally saved. It's just more acceptable, which typically makes things more insidious. Satan loves it when there's false hope based on false gospels from false or other spirits. You know, like Paul says, and we all do what? And as he says to the Corinthians, bear it beautifully. It's disgusting. So if you're involved in any of that, do yourself and everybody else in your little circle of friends and cut it out. God is not mocked, by the way, either. So if you're involved in that, eventually, if not already, your life is going to become hell. Especially now that you've been taught from this pulpit. Amen? What do you think of that, Holly? (laughs) Holly's like, (laughs) amen? Let's watch a video. You can tell that's a big problem. Folks, very passionate about it because I see it, and it's gross, and it's pawned off as something good, and it's disgusting. Anyways, I'll let it go.
1: Can't see the slaves we are In all the searching, all the grasping Like we deserve much more Than all these blessings
0: thank you again for this morning's message for this time to be equipped as your word states for the work of service to the benefit of all the saints thank you for leaving us here in this location even though it is riddled with antagonism towards the gospel we pray father that our strength be maintained no matter the trial that our convictions be solidified, never waning, regardless of the testing. And that our faith be ever increased through humility as you pour out grace upon us, the undeserving. We pray also, Father, for those who need to hear this message, that they not be distracted by the details of life, being led astray by unbelievers and the doctrines of demons. We pray that we each stand, as you intended, as beacons on a hill this day. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.